Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. Welcome to the August installment of Beer with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. This is the podcast series of our institute, which highlights the thoughts, philosophies, and science of members of our institute, as well as our friends. Uh, this month, we have Ryan Hastings, which is going to talk to us about the link between Buddhism and, and astrobiology. Um, but first, Julia will introduce the beverage this month. Um, keep in mind to obey your local laws with regards to uh, having beverages. Um, but I think this month, Julia has a non-alcoholic one planned for us, which is really exciting. So, Julia. All right. Well, I just so happen to have this wonderful tea called Bak Tea Chai. Um, and you can get these lovely individually uh, bottled chais at probably Whole Foods. And it's definitely a bolder company, so it might only be in Colorado. I've seen it a couple places in California. Um, but basically, this bhakti chai has its roots back in India. Um, and it tastes more like the traditional chai in India. So all tea in India is called chai. And we have a different meaning of chai. But this chai is more like the traditional Indian chai and it has a lot of ginger and cardamom and cinnamon and other spices with black tea. And this one has soy milk, which is awesome if you're lactose intolerant. So um, cheers everyone. And I am looking forward to hearing the talk on Buddhism and astrobiology. Cheers. Uh, cheers. Thanks so much, Julia. That sounds delicious. Uh, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Hastings, who uh, recently uh, completed his PhD at Penn State uh, in meteorology, focusing on convection and uh, tornado genesis. Um, I'll add that I also um, got to know Ryan as part of a philosophy of science discussion group that we both participated in, which allowed us to... Uh, explore um, our science in a little more philosophical sense. Brian recently is starting a position as a visiting assistant professor at Purdue University in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department. Um, but what he's going to be talking about today is Buddhism, and so what's relevant to this talk is that he's been interested in Buddhism since the age 16. He's been studying it on his own through his whole life, does his best to put the teaching into practice. He's not an official Dharma teacher, but he knows a fair amount about the topic, and uh, he's going to share with us what he knows about it today. Ryan, please. Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I would also, since this was called Beers for uh, with uh, Blue Marble Space, this is actually the very first beer I've had in my new place. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to have a beer, uh, an excuse to have a beer. Uh, so it wasn't really that I was going to talk about Buddhism and astrobiology so much as uh, I, I wanted to talk about Buddhism, but I wanted to kind of motivate it by relating it to interstellar travel. So interstellar travel, unless we have some sort of unforeseen developments in, say, faster than light technology, then uh, we're going to need to have ships that can travel for decades uh, with uh, and we'll have multiple generations of people living on them. So what they're going to require 
is uh, besides all of the uh, technological difficulties in construction, constructing such a ship, it's going to require a stable society, which uh, is kind of a hard thing to come by. It's kind of a big problem for philosophy, for political philosophy that's really never been solved. You know, how do you construct, how do you create a stable society that is going to be capable of traveling the stars? So most ideas about how to construct stable societies right now are rooted in the late 18th century in classical liberalism, where the idea is basically you afford each individual the opportunity to the liberty to pursue their own vision of happiness or to try to pursue happiness. In this pursuit, then, of course, there are, uh, there are inevitable conflicts which arise between people because everybody's, you know, kind of got an idea of what they want for ha what happiness means to them. Or maybe that's not really what they want after all. They're chasing after pleasure or power or status and, and are motivated by those kinds of things. And those kinds of things end up generating conflicts. And so our current way of approaching the, the resolution, to the avoidance of those conflicts is to come up with a set of agreements. And those agreements are more, more or less a code of conduct is then prescribed for everybody in the society to follow. And, you know, lots of societies, not just liberal societies, but lots of societies have had codes of conduct and attempted to impose them in order to control and, and create a stable society, a, a happy society. Because I think most people would agree that if you, a stable society is a happy one, composed of happy individuals, individuals that have found their happiness and thus don't come into conflict in, their, in that pursuit. One thing that should be evident as we lack, for the most part, we know we do have some, obviously United States and European societies look pretty stable over the long run, um, but there's still all these conflicts that occur within and if we try to scale those kinds of things, those kinds of grand experiments down to a local community level, any number of people, you know, it's pretty easy to see ways in which communities can easily tear themselves apart uh, as people, uh, even with strict codes of conduct. So what I would suggest is that besides simply imposing a code of conduct on our interstellar travelers, because we're going to be doing this for generations, and we're going to have new people with new ideas come up in, on this interstellar voyage. That instead there be some sort of uh, training, some sort of method of training that would also help bring about happiness. And I've been using this word happiness a whole lot, and I haven't defined it, and I'm not going to, because <laughs> it's a very complicated philosophical problem. But I hope that as I talk, we get some, we all have some idea of what happiness means, that it's something different from simple satisfaction. Uh, because satisfaction always ends. That an idea of a, a, what I'm talking about here is an idea of a sort of lasting happiness, uh, something that you know perturbations can occur, but the uh, system always returns to a state that's nice and happy. So it's not just satisfaction uh, of some passing whim, or you know if you eat you'll get hungry again. So it's not just satisfaction, but also a sense of contentment that goes along with it. And that's that's as far as I'm going to really define happiness. To a large extent, I think of it as a sort of absence of suffering, uh, and I'll get to what uh, I mean by that, because that's a pretty fundamental point in Buddhism. So I would propose then that uh, any uh, method of training uh, that would bring about, that's designed to actually make people happier, would resemble Buddhism. It wouldn't, uh, it's not to say that Buddhism is the only way that anybody can ever be happy. But if you ever have any systematic uh, set of techniques, uh, such as those that are being, then this is why that Buddhism is a very big, has a very big interest in both psychology and, and therapy right now, uh, is because any anything that brings about happiness is going, I would, I would assert, is going to resemble in, in some very non-superficial ways uh, a lot of the elements of Buddhism. 
So I'm not suggesting that our interstellar travelers need to be Buddhist, but I'm saying that Buddhism does have to offer some features that might be of interest that would make this uh, interstellar travel and this stable society a, a little more stable and a little more possible. So we're all familiar with Buddhism as one of the major world religions. And of course, there's a, a religious side to Buddhism with iconography and mythology and devotional like type exercises and things like that. So what I'll be actually talking about is a fairly highly westernized uh, version. So there's new versions of Buddhism that are sort of being generated, that have been generated in the last hundred years as Buddhism interacts with the West, interacts with uh, uh, the scientific mind of the West. And uh, so really it's from the, these newer versions uh, and also mining the older Buddhisms that we can get uh, some, sort of, some sort of training plan here. So Buddhism is a world religion, but it's very different from all of the other world religions. First off, there isn't a God. There isn't a divine being or any kind of all-powerful consciousness that, that pervades the universe. So it's usually referred to as non-theistic uh, because it, it's, it doesn't really care whether or not God exists that's, uh, or whether or not gods exist. It's kind of an irrelevant question because Buddhism, unlike any other world religion, takes as its point of departure the problem of suffering. Uh, most world religions, when they uh, they do end up coming across the problem of suffering, but that's because they start with the idea that God exists, a loving God exists, and thus, you know, but suffering exists as well, so how do we explain the existence of suffering? Whereas Buddhism starts with the simple fact that suffering exists. Now, there are a lot of ways to formulate the ideas, the sort of thinking behind Buddhism, and so I'm going to be using what's called the Four Noble Truths, which is the usual way of introducing the ideas of Buddhism. And so the first of the Four Noble Truths is simply that suffering exists. Unlike the word happiness, I am going to give more of a definition to the word suffering, uh, because it is actually a fairly key concept, and, and really what Buddhism is about. One, one way you can describe what all of Buddhist training is about, what every branch of Buddhism is about, is learning how the mind works to generate suffering or difficulties for ourselves, and learning and using what we learn about how the mind works to stop it from doing that, to eliminate those difficulties that we generate for ourselves. And so that's, and that's what our interstellar travelers will need to be doing, is finding out how they are creating difficulties for themselves on our, their long journey in their small community and how to not do that for themselves so they don't do that with each other. Now, this word suffering, the actual word in the, the, the languages of, the original language of Buddhism is um, Pali, uh, and the word is dukkha. And dukkha, it literally means uh, physical pain. Uh, like the ow, ow, I stubbed my toe, that's, that's dukkha. But in the Buddhist uh, sort of technical language, the technical language that was developed by the Buddha and by subsequent monks who meticulously went over what he supposedly said, then there's this idea that dukkha can refer to all kinds of pains and difficulties. So uh, in the word suffering, when we think of the word suffering, uh, we think of like in, in English, it's sort of like this grand, difficult, like orphans of war or people dying of cancer and these, these really traumatic situations, these grand situations. And so suffering is kind of an inadequate translation of the word dukkha, because dukkha can also refer to just simply everyday annoyances, this sort of anxiety, uh, if you're stress eating, the sort of anxiety you have that propels you to, to stress eat. Uh, if you're, we've got a test coming up, the, the stress you feel towards, you know, the, or an upcoming uh, talk you're giving to a bunch of strangers, the sort of stress that you feel in the hour before that, 
Or uh, one t thing I've been thinking about a lot, because this, this new town I've moved to has some really bad traffic at times, is just the traffic problem, like getting frustrated because I'm stuck in traffic. And so that qualifies as suffering in this Buddhist sense. And, and I mean, there have been a couple of other ways to translate the word dukkha that have been proposed, but they're all like awkward, like ill ease or dis-ease or unease. And so they're all kind of like awkward. So I'm going to stick with the word suffering, but I hope that I sort of defined it enough that we actually can communicate, uh, that I'm actually effectively communicating. Now, so yeah, the fact that it exists, uh, which is evident simply from examining your everyday existence, we've so broadly defined it that it's pretty much impossible not to think of an example of it. When the Buddha defined suffering, there were two like basic ideas that go into it, that actually, that are really the defining features of it. And that is being separated from what you desire, from what is pleasurable, and being in contact with what is repulsive, what is undesirable. And so for our example of being stuck in traffic, the fact that I am not home, which is nice and, and all set up and cozy and I've got my office and everything, I've got my nice comfortable everything there, the fact that I'm not there can be a source of dukkha, of this difficulty, of this irritation because I'm stuck in traffic and I just want to be home. Similarly, uh, the experience of being stuck in a car where I can't, my seat's never quite right and it's not quite long enough for my long legs and uh, the fumes and then the, the traffic just stops and starts and I'm in contact with things that I don't like. It's, it's repulsive. And so that's kind of, those are the two basic things that go on to create, the two basic tensions that end up creating this dukkha, this difficulty. The second of the Four Noble Truths is that all things have causes and conditions, and so does suffering. So everything that exists in our world has, is caused by something and has certain conditions that have to be in place for it to exist. And so this dukkha is no different. I mean, the basic conditions are those which I just mentioned, that you're separated from something pleasurable or that which you want, and that you're uh, in contact with something that you don't want, or either of those two things is going on. So what's going on in those situations? Now, there's some, been plenty of research. I'm, I'm never one to like to see like ancient wisdom, ancient wisdom uh, that might be revered as sort of exotic being related to like modern discoveries. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody's familiar with some Hinduism quantum mechanics type gobbledygook that gets thrown around. But in the case of this Buddhist stuff, there's actually some recent discoveries in cognitive science that kind of uh, are helpful. Bring me back from that tangent. So whenever we have sense perceptions coming into our brains, uh, there is an immediate, an almost immediate, a very rapid pre-processing that happens throughout the limbic system. Uh, I imagine most people are familiar with this. It occurs very quickly to the point where by the time we're consciously aware of whatever that sensory perception was, that feeling tone is already there. And so our limbic system is very quickly uh, pre-processing information uh, as it's coming in and then presenting it to, and then any further thought that happens has already been colored by this feeling tone given by the uh, limbic system. So it's almost, it feels almost simultaneous as it happens. And so what that means for our experience, uh, and it should be emphasized that uh, Buddhism is not about things that happen in the real world per se, but it's about examining our own experiences of things. And, and so the stuff that Buddhism works on is what we experience, not necessarily the material world. Um, 
in fact, it's kind of irrelevant. The existence of the material world, material world is kind of irrelevant to Buddhist practice. All Buddhism cares about is what we experience. And so when we experience perceptions, they automatically come with these feelings. They automatically come with either a pleasant or an unpleasant feeling. And everything that we experience, all of our perceptions, whether they're real or imaginary, we might be imagining a scenario, uh, we might be presented with the traffic and the fact that things are just stop and start and it's just so frustrating. That frustration is coming along automatically with that perception. Uh, and this happens to a large extent. It's, it's uh, conditioned responses based on past experiences, based on these experiences being coordinated with other memories uh, and given context, given an emotional context. And then following that, then there's uh, this pleasant or unpleasant feeling, this desirable or undesirable feeling. And uh, so I'm sitting in traffic and I'm imagining my home and I'm wanting that. I'm, 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 it's desirable, it's pleasurable, but it's separated from me. And so I want to be there, or I'm, you know, perceiving the traffic, and it's undesirable and uninteresting. That how how all that works kind of shows us where we can cut the wire, where uh, in in this experience we can actually sort of cut the wire that leads to this dukkha. Uh, now, this emotional pre-processing is an automatic process. There's really not a lot we can do about it right here, right now. It's just happening. But as a side note, though, it's worth noting that because it is a conditional response based on past experiences and past actions, the actions that we take now and the experiences we have now do further condition, further uh, are further experiences with that object. So what decisions I make and how I treat, how I treat and how I approach this being stuck in traffic will set conditions, will actually affect my response in the future. Uh, so that's sort of a side note. But as the, uh, so the point at which we can sort of cut the wire is the point at which these feelings are presented, which are simply reactions, uh, our own reaction, our own actions we take subsequent to the experience of these feelings, uh, to the experience of this uh, desirability or undesirability. So then what the central theme, what the central exercise in Buddhism is then, is simply stopping and looking deeply. Uh, and these, uh, these are, this is how Thich Nhat Hanh translates the word samatha and vipassana. And these are the sort of the two basic poles of Buddhist meditation. And so like I'm stuck in traffic and this really difficult, annoying feeling has arisen. And instead of being swept along by it, instead of being uh, ruled or governed by it, I take a moment to stop. Don't let it push me around. And that's an important thing that's also often misunderstood about Buddhism. It's not about eradicating desires. It's about not being pushed around by those desires that we have, because we can't really do much about the desires themselves right here in this moment, this moment that I'm experiencing now, the desires that I'm feeling, I can't really do much about them. But I can decide what actions I take based on those desires. Uh, and the same thing goes based on uh, if I feel angry. It doesn't just have to be desire, it can be anger or fear. or There are some pretty elaborate formula for all the different things that can, uh, that can push you around. So the central thing to do then is first stop and stop it from moving you, uh, and, and then to look deeply at what's going on. Uh, and so instead of this irritation being a sort of background feeling that, that propels my thoughts and my uh, decision-making and what actions I take, I instead have stopped, and I can look and see how this irritation is operating, how this anger is operating, or maybe how this desire is operating to modify my cognition. And so that's the, that's what the Buddhists describe as wisdom, uh, is the ability to actually look and understand how the mind is working in that moment. How is the presence of this desire? How is the presence of this irritation? How is this affecting 
every other mental process that's going on. And once I see how that is happening, then that gives me the opportunity to be free of it. And so now we're kind of getting into the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which is simply a description of the process itself, of, of how this meditation works. One thing that I think is important to also understand about this is that it's not about suppression. If I have this irritation of this anger at being stuck in traffic, or if I have this desire for uh, getting up and going to have some food when I really am not hungry, whatever thing is causing this dukkha, it's not about suppressing that desire or suppressing that irritation, but it's about being fully present to it. Because the extent to which you suppress it and are not present to it is the extent to which it holds, it has this grip over you and the extent to which you're not liberated. And so this poorly defined concept of happiness that I keep throwing around, one key part of that is this notion of liberation, this notion that you're no longer being propelled, that you're free of these desires and difficulties. So stopping and looking deeply, samatha and vipassana, these are the like two main poles of Buddhist meditation. Uh, and the goal of them, so meditation doesn't just exist for the sake of meditating, but it exists because it's a technique, it's a tool for coming to understand how the mind works uh, and for coming to cultivate these skills of stopping and looking deeply. Uh, one way of looking at Buddhism is it's a skill set. The ability to, mind, to, to concentrate or the ability to be mindful and be aware uh, are skills that you develop through these exercises in meditation. So this fourth noble truth then is this, this usually called the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's just a description of the, uh, of the training itself. And I'm not going to go in, uh, I want to be limited on time here, um, so I'm not going to go in deeply uh, about all these different, all the different steps in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, but basically there's three components to it. There's this wisdom, uh, this insight that you gain from the meditation and learning how the mind works. There's this, uh, the meditation itself, uh, cultivating concentration and cultivating focus, cultivating mindfulness, so that when this feeling arises, I can focus and I can be aware of it rather than and be present to it. And so these, these skills get developed. And now in order to develop these meditation skills, Meditation isn't simply something that one does while sitting on the cushion, but it's something that one does, should be taking into everyday life. Like I should be meditating even as I'm walking down the street and thoughts are occurring to me and I'm seeing this billboard advertising this thing that I don't really need, but I kind of want because it'd be nice to have a new smartphone, right? So having this constant uh, sort of mindfulness, um, this being constantly stopped even while in motion and being constantly able to look deeply, these are the... Uh, are the things that, that, that are the goal. And so that means also living the li living life in a certain way. And so then there becomes this sort of, so, so then we get to Buddhist ethics and that's where I'll conclude uh, talking about this. And so we, I mentioned earlier the existence of codes of conduct and how those don't make for a stable society. Buddhist ethics is not like a code of conduct. It's just like everything else in Buddhism, it's a skill set to develop certain things, certain actions you take, certain ways of speaking that we have are going to make it more difficult to meditate. That's just simple. If you're not an honest person, then when you meditate and you try to be present and mindful to yourself and to your experience, your dishonesty will become very evident and very, will confront you uh, and make and just generate more difficulty. If you harm things intentionally, if you go out of your way to harm others uh, or harm yourself, then those kinds of things are going to come up and prevent you from being able to meditate effectively. And so when we look at the ethics, there are five basic uh, ethical prescriptions that are given to lay people, and those are not, not to harm, uh, not to take what is not given, don't steal, 
to be honest, uh, which doesn't just mean being truthful, but it also means having a sense of integrity, uh, a sense of wholeness uh, and goodness from which you sort of act. Ah, no sexual misconduct. Uh, so don't engage in activities, manage your desires, don't engage in, don't satisfy your desires in ways that are harmful. This sort of gets back to this non-harming. And finally, uh, to avoid intoxication to the point of heedlessness. Uh, so the entire point of this, of, of mindfulness, of meditation, uh, is harmed if you just get intoxicated to the point where you're no longer mindful. And so that's a basic summary of the method of training. And I hope I've at least sparked some ideas, or at least given some sense of the ways in which Buddhism might contribute to making for a stable society. If some of these methods, uh, some of these trainings are included for anybody who's going on an interstellar journey and then passed down, what, uh, how, that, um, how that might help make a stable society. And that is all I have to say. Uh, well, thanks, Ryan. That was great. I've actually got a question to maybe start things off here. So with the world ship, one of the classic scenarios is halfway through the journey. You know, someone has an awakening where they realize that they're actually going somewhere and that the ship is not a planet, but it's a ship headed towards a destination. And maybe they don't like that they've been on this journey against their will for generations. And so a mutiny starts and then the ship no longer reaches its destination because... The, the inhabitants, the generations, are not content with fulfilling this generation-long mission. They want to have control. So uh, you kind of give a lot of you know good examples of, of the principles of Buddhism. How might you apply that on a world ship to allow this intergenerational project to succeed? Well, I think the first thing that would have to be, I actually, and maybe not, maybe I'm not totally familiar with this concept of world ships. I'd never realized that there was an element of dishonesty that was part of it. And so it seems to me that the first thing, uh, and this gets back to just the basic ethical trainings, uh, is that you would have to be honest with each generation that, look, we're stuck in this ship, are hurling towards the star, and there's just nothing that we can, we can do about it. So might as well get along, <laughs> I guess, the best I have to offer there. Uh, but I would hope that dishonesty is dishonesty to future generations. I would hope that's not a fundamental part of this I don't know that that's a planned part, but that may have been in some popular science fiction conceptions of it. So I suppose that makes sense. If, if everybody knows from the days they're born that this is part of their destiny, then that would certainly help. Yeah, I imagine there's other challenges to the human psyche in, in never being on an actual physical planet for your entire life that would probably require some of this, uh, this mental training. Uh, anyone else have any questions for Ryan? I think I have one, but I'm not entirely sure how to formulate it in the sense that I agree that, you know, some of the Buddhist principles would definitely benefit long-term space travel. But in terms of training individuals, how do you do that without calling it a code of conduct or imposing a philosophy or, or making the link between Buddhism and religion and people don't want to be told what to believe in? Well, that's, that's already happening to some extent. Uh, uh, there's a, a number of things that are done in therapy right now, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically a set of, set of techniques taken from Buddhism that are then applied in the therapeutic context. And there's also um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, and so really, the kind of thing I'm talking about here, the kind of training, rather than do it based around any kind of ideological center, I, I mean, a lot of this stuff is either a, a practice or just a self-evident fact. Like the fact is suffering exists. That's not, I mean, that's uh, part of our experience. And, and so a lot of this is, and so approaching it like a training program, 
so that's what mindfulness-based stress reduction does, which actually at this point has been more than adequately demonstrated to be a, a great way, great technique for healing and a very effective, uh, almost effective as certain drug therapies for certain uh, groups of mentally ill individuals. And so some approach like that, some approach that to some extent decontextualizes it from the religious trappings, but retains uh, this sense of cultivating mindfulness. Uh, and I think that the fact is anyone who has gone through this sort of training and is engaged in it quite simply uh, is going to have a somewhat compelling presence. And so it's going to, so being in contact with people, my experience is being in contact with people who are well-trained uh, actually gives uh, me a sort of, it's a sort of its own motivation to continue the training. And so that's another aspect of this um, and it's something apart from charisma. It's not like it's it's something apart from charisma. Uh, it's almost an envy of the sort of contentment that uh, and the sort of peacefulness that comes with having uh, having committed to this, this this practice. So I would suggest that's another way to that people would be motivated to undertake the training. Um, I find it's really interesting that you know long term space flight training is actually well should be quite different than short-term international space station type of training because it's not only knowing what to do in an emergency and you know how to run the machines but it's also uh, a really philosophically and emotionally stressful endeavor and so training the mind in addition to you know your day-to-day -day activities is i think Maybe underthought in terms of, of crew training. I don't know. Do they spend some time in Lhasa for <laughs> for some time? That's no, that's really thought provoking. Yeah, I would think that um, we might get some glimpses into that if any of these uh, missions to Mars succeed. If we actually do put colonists on Mars and they spend even a year living there, we've, we've seen physical. I mean, we've seen some uh, some. You know, uh, we have some idea of what space uh, living does to a person from the International Space Station, but people actually living on Mars for several years, I think we'll start to see what the real psychological impact of that is. I wonder if there are some results from the Mars 500 that can be looked at in terms of the psychology of the people. I'm sure that was explored. What was the Mars 500? It was a uh, European-Russian mission on Earth where they locked up people for 500 days in a simulated Mars environment. Well, simulated Mars, just kind of they had their quarters and then they landed on Mars, did their thing, came back to their quarters, flew back the entire duration of a Mars mission, essentially, where they had very little access to outside and the duration of contact to the outside world increased as they got further and so forth. So it was everything about a Mars mission except from being in space and on Mars, just to test the psyche. <laughs> So. Yeah, have you guys have you guys read uh, Packing for Mars? That book is by Mary Roach. I'm just like maybe like 40 pages into it, but um, they talk about like the simulated Mars. I think in the book, um, the Mars 500 mission had just arrived at Mars, but they talked about um, a different training that was a an ISS training that was similar to the Mars 500 but you know, not as long, but there was a whole lot of um, conflict between uh, the different countries. I think fight broke out and it was just really interesting. 
um, even it wasn't that long of a study, maybe like a, well, what are the, how long are most ISS missions, like 90 days or something, 100 days? No, uh, eight to nine months, I think, for the longest ones. Is it? Okay. Oh, that's right, because they always have 100-day parties. But anyways, um, so there's like, and I remember from the Mars 500 results, or at least there was, there's also another Mars. Oh, looks like we like Julia. <laughs> but yeah, so. Oh, am I not here? Oh, you're back. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there's the things that I've heard is that like, it really takes a toll on your psyche and your sleep schedule and your um, productivity, I think are the, the main results that, that came from it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good discussion of how to combat that and maybe uh, meditation training is a, something they should test next. Oh, sorry. This is uh, Kendall Lynch calling. I joined a little late, so I've been listening in quietly, but I didn't get to introduce myself in the beginning. Um, uh, and I, I just wanted to say that um, with respect to some of the Buddhist principles that Brian was talking about, I have experienced and seen um, some group training that has used these principles in teaching people, you know, as Ryan was saying, how to manage their, their daily lives and their, you know, their thoughts about suffering and how to manage their daily situation, not only within themselves, but within a group dynamic. And it really does work over long term um, if you train, you know, if you train people in these principles individually and as a group. So I definitely think there's potentially some benefit to using these techniques in crew training, but the important thing I think that has to happen is it can't just be on an individual level, it has to be at a group level um, and training them how to communicate using these principles. And that's where you see the actual benefit, at least in the group training that I have done over and have seen over the years. Thanks, Kenda. Hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point about the individual training versus group training. I think definitely both are important. Maybe, Ryan, you have some thoughts on that? Uh, no, I don't. Other <laughs> than that was interesting. I'd be curious to hear more about what happened in the group training sessions, actually, because that's not something I'm familiar with. Uh, well, uh, Ryan, we could we could talk about that. I, I actually went through kind of uh, several years of this of this training, and it, it was actually very impactful for me. So this is something we could probably talk about offline. <laughs> that would make sense to me for uh, the context of interstellar travel. That you would probably want everyone to be on the same page with the same type of compatible training, and perhaps um, the equivalent of guides. I know you'd have to be decontextualized from Buddhism, but you would basically need some sort of guide or, or a series of guides um, aboard a ship to make sure that that's uh, you know, being, being uh, complemented and reinforced consistently. It's very interesting to think about. I think the psychological aspects of space travel become more apparent uh, with time. Yeah, absolutely. Does anybody have any final questions for Ryan? Yeah, All right, well, I, Ryan? Do, I do actually really quickly. Go ahead. Um, so I... Tornadoologist, or what was that term that was used in the beginning? <laughs> Tornadogenesis? Tornadogenesis, yes. That's, that's awesome. How does someone that studies that, like, how did you get into Buddhism? Like, what's your history on that? I, I know you're um, interested since you were 16, but you just could go into that a little more. Okay. Well, um, when I was really young, I was raised on science, uh, but I was also raised in a fairly conservative Christian household. 
And when I, uh, but I became interested in some of these other satanic religions, these other evil demonic religions. So I began to read about them. And when I read about Buddhism, uh, it actually made a lot of sense. Um, it was uh, just a sort of very clear, uh, very, very, it seemed very obvious, uh, very obviously true. Uh, at least in this, at least in the way that I've described it today, and um, so really that's been more constant for me than science. Because then later in high school I was actually interested in things like literature, and then when I when I first went to college in Indiana University, I actually studied religious studies with a focus on Buddhism for a couple of years before dropping out of school, <laughs> uh, because I decided that learning about it in the classroom wasn't just the same as actually going out and doing it. So I ended up moving and, and just kind of living on my own for a few years, studying what I could and working before deciding to return to school. Uh, and I returned to school for mathematics and then went for a while as a political organizer where I found this sort of, where I continued exploring Buddhism most of this whole time. I mean, uh, so really the Buddhism has been more constant for me than the meteorology. I don't know if that answers that question at all, but so it, it, it's, I mean, pretty much everything in my life that isn't about tornadoes is about <laughs> Buddhism. Thanks very Jacob. much. Jacob, should we uh, let Brittany introduce the, uh, the yes, beverage? Yes, we have you here. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no problem. This is the uh, third time I've had a time zone fail this week. Um, something about this move has, been, uh, has taken my brain and totally corrupted my sense of time. So that's been kind of interesting. <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I'm very excited to introduce, uh, introduce a beverage for this week. Um, so I would generally, I would normally have chosen beer, but um, I'm in LA and there's a lot of great uh, wine shops and I visited my favorite recently. So I thought I would, uh, I would introduce a, a white wine. So what I have here, because I'm in a hotel, I don't have a wine glass. So I have a very classy, uh, at least it's glass. So you know, so that's good. so that's a good step in the right direction. But um, this is a a Torontes. So um, here's the bottle. Um, so this is Tilia, and it's it's a, actually a pretty good example. So a Torontes is a um, an Argentine white grape, and they have absolutely beautiful kind of crisp acidic flavors. Um, I'm into white wines that are really really bright and very acidic, um, maybe a little dry. Um, I, uh, so that, this is kind of right directly in the middle of my flavor palette. And so the way I would describe it is kind of, um, it's like the, like a, like a lighter, uh, a lighter version almost of a Sauvignon Blanc. So many people have probably had Sauvignon Blancs. You get that really, um, kind of tart acidity and you get really bright fruit notes. So, um, things that you might find in a Tarantes are usually, um, apples and, and pears a little bit, or kind of a nectarine taste. Um, so this one is a pretty good, actually, example, so I'm going to sample some because it's quite good. Um, and so this one in particular, I would, I would describe as kind of like a nectarine, uh, a nectarine character to it. And so if you're into kind of really bright fruit notes, um, it's a really great thing. The other great thing about the Torontes is that they're really aromatic. So their, their origin is a combination of muscat grapes and a few other things. Um, and muscats are, are generally kind of thicker, a little more, they're a, they're a sweet kind of dessert wine in many, in many cases. Um, they can be very light, but this is kind of a um, reminiscent of that in terms of, um, in terms of 
of the nose. So you get these kind of really gorgeous um, fruit notes. So it's it's fun to drink because it not only tastes great, but as you're you know you can you can kind of smell it at the same time. So it's really really amazing. So the Tarantes is a is a cool grape because um, it actually grows in really high regions. So they actually uh, commonly grow it in in northern Argentina, and it is. Um, often grown even even above about a mile high, so in these really high arid regions, kind of uh, sandy loam kind of uh, vineyards. So it's got this, that's where it gets that uh, that acidity and holds on to the, these bold fruit flavors and um, doesn't have that heavy character that a lot of wines have. So anyways, um, my first Toronto is actually my, I thought it would be fun to do this for, for Beer with Blue Marble Space because the first Torontes I actually had was um, was actually in, in Sweden. Um, which is, you know, a natural place to have an Argentine white wine. But um, they, uh, I, uh, Lori Barge and I, so we're both friends from, from Astrobiology. Um, we had just left the, uh, the, um, the 2010 um, uh, at GradCon that was held in Sweden. Uh, so we went. We decided we would go hiking up in the north and uh, Kungsleden, which is the uh, the Swedish Royal Trail. So, um, and they were so convinced we were having a you know a healthy hiking festival. And then we got there and they had a fabulous restaurant at the hiking like we you know we're staying in like dorm style hiking lodge that just randomly had an amazing restaurant. So um, we ended up drinking Torontes because it was it was one of the best white wines they had there. And I've been a fan ever since. So uh, cheers to everyone. And I, uh, thanks for, for letting yeah. me give a belated introduction to a, a glorious white wine that everyone should have in their fridge. <laughs> Thank Cheers. you so much, Ritty. <laughs> okay, well, um, in closing, listeners, thank you so much for, for joining us. Next month is another edition of Beers with a Primarble Space Institute of Science. Uh, don't forget, you can check out our podcasts at www.bmsis.org slash podcast. And until then, have a great month. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.